This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Tour de Lovecraft, The Destinations. Succinct GMing. Narrative sharing. And the Chicago Phantom. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books. Play for players, run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. Before we get uh, started with our uh, excited uh, series of typical delights, uh, we would just like to point out that this is the final day of Annie's voting. So if you head on over to, uh, I could just type in uh, Annie's voting into your into your Googles, and that'll get you there. If you would like us to uh, win an Annie Award for this podcast, or uh, if you happen to love Ken and his work on uh, Bubble Gumshoe, or if you uh, love uh, Gumshoe, and therefore the Time Watch uh, line, or various other uh, cool things from our uh, sponsors at uh, Pelgrane. I think Arc Dream also has a couple of things up for any. So there's lots of cool stuff to vote for, and if you would like to vote for us, uh, we would appreciate the approval. It's time once again for Among My Many Hats. This, of course, is the segment where the covert self-promotion of the rest of the podcast is superseded by the overt self-promotion of one of us plugging a uh, current or upcoming project. And Ken, uh, even as one Kickstarter wanes, uh, folks, if you are listening to this on the very Friday that it drops, you have until 8 p.m. Eastern to jump onto the Yellow King Kickstarter and uh, see how many stretch goals you can... Uh, uh, knock down on the way out. Of course, uh, you may have already pledged, in which case uh, you already have my undying love and need take no further action. However, Ken, you have either at this time or imminently, because of course this involves the uh, cosmic radiation of a meteor that fell in your backyard and there's, you know, problems with that and there's non-Euclidean geometry, but assuming the geometry uh, re-Euclideans itself, you may also have a Kickstarter out at this very moment, or about to be out. Imminent. And that, imminent. Im- imminent. Either out or imminent. It is either yes. upon you, or it is coming, and there are prophecies and signs hereabouts. But either way, yes. 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 Imminent and uh, imminent. Um, and so, uh, this, of course, is Tour de Lovecraft, The Destinations. Now, uh, way back in the Miss Podcast time, we had a previous 
preview segment for a Kickstarter that turned out to have a different focus, which was a relaunch of your first book in this series, which is Tour to Lovecraft, The Tales. And now, as we've come uh, close to the uh, the moment of truth, the moment of the Shoggoths uh, running down the ice field at you, it has been switched up a bit to now become Tour to Lovecraft, The Destinations. Now, longtime listeners to this podcast need merely hear Ken is writing another book about Lovecraft, and boom, they're on that. But just for practice, what's the elevator pitch? The elevator pitch is that just as Tour to Lovecraft The Tales looked at all of Lovecraft's stories, this looks at Lovecraft's settings. Lovecraft is, of course, uh, very, very setting-minded. He describes himself location-minded as a cat. It looks at the settings longitudinally as they appear throughout the stories. So there is an essay on uh, not just Antarctica, but on Arkham. And Arkham, of course, appears differently in each story because Lovecraft is deploying it as a literary trope, not as a reference to some uh, real thing. And indeed, if you look at the way that he portrays New York City in his stories, even when he refers to real things, he uses them as literary tropes. And it's the examination of that sort of intersection of real location and fictive setting that I think is super productive and is also not been done systematically by anyone else. So I thought, hey, I'm the guy to do it. And way back in the day, Steven Seagal, not beloved Putinist action star Steven Seagal, but Steven Seagal, the editor of Weird Tales, said, I would love to see that and put it in Weird Tales as a column, which was called Lost in Lovecraft. While it was running, Weird Tales won its only Hugo. Not saying, but saying. <laughs> Did you storm the stage and take uh, 148th credit of it? I was, I was not at Worldcon because they did not hold Worldcon in Chicago, and it is my practice to only attend Worldcon when it is in the greatest city in the world, as you know, Robin. But uh, I'm sure that it was stormed in spirit because I got a lovely uh, picture of the Hugo that uh, the editors got, and deservedly so. Anyhow, this is not about uh, my uh, putative Hugo Award. This is about... H.P. Lovecraft and the sort of use that he puts places and conceptual places. So in addition to your Innsmouth and your Vermont and your Providence, we also have essays on the woods and hyperspace and antiquity and underground and the sort of conceptual places that are also such core parts of Lovecraft when you're talking about where uh, as opposed to uh, what and ah! The other great questions. So what is it about this that makes this a great project for Kickstarter? Well, the thing that makes it a great project for Kickstarter, first of all, is that it is uh, about Lovecraft and people on Kickstarter love the Lovecraft. They love the Cthulhu. But the other thing is that uh, like many Kickstarters, that if we get a burst of enthusiasm for it, we can not only bring Tour to Lovecraft the Tales back into print and thus justify my previous plug, but also we can add more essays because there are more locations that are not covered in the sort of initial run of the Weird Tales stuff or even the initial planned run of Weird Tales. For example, I didn't have a planned essay at that time on Egypt, but obviously if you've read Under the Pyramids, you know that Lovecraft said something in Egypt <laughs> after a great deal of uh, vomited forth travelogue. Uh, eventually, Harry Houdini gets off the dime and goes and has an adventure. And what does Lovecraft mean when he puts Egypt in as the place near Lothotep comes from? And that uh, concern with Egypt, of course, flows through Lovecraft stories, and it shows up in places you wouldn't expect, like, for example, in Cool Air, where Munoz is using Egyptian incense and Egyptian sorceries during lives. So Egypt becomes a signifier to Lovecraft, and we can ask, what does it signify? So many of the stretch goals will then be 
exciting new essays on locations that are not part of your original draft. Right. Yes. And uh, some of them will be making the book better. So there will be, you know, making it uh, on nicer paper or uh, getting it a cool bookmark or those sorts of things. And that's the sort of uh, that's Hal's fun. And uh, Hal Mangold, beloved publisher of Atomic Overmind, my partner in this business, as in so many other businesses, will be uh, making the book as lovely as he made Tour to Lovecraft the Tales. And I think even lovelier because uh, he has only gotten better at loveliness in the intervening decade. Should we assume that in the interest of capitalism, there are both standard and uh, deluxe editions of the of the books to purchase? We are currently uh, negotiating or, or uh, discussing with a beloved and gifted bookmaker, possibly known to you personally, who may be persuaded to make a ultra deluxe version of it, but there will be hard copy and PDF will be our current thinking on the deluxeness. Although I don't know if there's going to be a, a, a lovely leather bound thing. That's up to hell. Right. Well, I, I would tell Hal to do a, a standard and a leather bound thing because he will sell more stuff for the two of you. Well, that's my piece of free podcast advice. There you go. And uh, free podcast advice, ladies and gentlemen, you don't get that with every podcast. No. And, and all, all listeners have gotten this advice. So uh, you should also have leather bound editions of uh, your books that you're kickstarting for listeners at home. Make a note. So uh, this is a series of essays on different locations. I guess for the rest of this segment, then I should mention locations and uh, get you to discourse upon them. And we will also discover whether this is the location for an essay that you already have in the chamber or that will be a stretch essay. Right. Uh, so uh, let's start with one that we know has got to be in the book. Arkham. Arkham. What, what's, uh, what do we discover about Arkham when you look at all the stories and all the references to Arkham and uh, look at them as a continuum, if not a whole? Uh, when you look at Arkham, much like looking at all of Lovecraft's cities, Arkham exists as its own evil twin. We know, for example, New York City is both the fairyland of, of cool air and the hideous monstrosity of horror at Red Hook. Arkham has the same approach. It is, of course, we know it as witch-haunted Arkham and uh, crumbling Arkham and uh, legend-haunted Arkham. But Arkham is also the contrast to the other terrible place. So when you are in the shadow over Innsmouth, the person who is a decent, upstanding non-mutant comes from Arkham. And when you are going up into the Maigo haunted hills of, of Vermont, Arkham is the staid, civilized 20th century that you are leaving behind. So Arkham is both of those things and adds, I think, a special note because he goes back to Arkham often enough that when he mentions its Georgian architecture, right, as opposed to its gambrel roofs, gambrel roofs uh, come out in pre-Georgian architecture. Uh, the Georgian architecture means that Arkham is a paradise as well. So it's a paradise city. And it is part of, for example, the Sunset City Dream of uh, Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. And when you examine those different ways that Arkham can be illuminated by Lovecraft as a setting or as a setting element, I think you sort of get a different sense of it and what it's doing at the, uh, you know, in the stories. And then I also play around with the derivations of Arkham, because again, you can derive it two possibilities from the Anglo-Saxon ham or home as in Nottingham, or you can derive it from Arkham as in the enclosure as in Oakham. So, uh, we don't know whether or not, uh, it is a home or an enclosure. And we don't know whether it's Ark is the Ark of Noah carrying, uh, monsters 
and and animals or the Ark of the Covenant carrying law and order. So Lovecraft is even dualizing the city in the name of the city when he invents it. And there's, there's many, lots of sort of direct references to Arkham and then glancing references to Arkham. And all of them are in service to this sort of, uh, rounded portrait of a town that he, that he puts up. And, and maybe that's why Arkham sticks in our mind, despite not actually being on stage that often. Right. And it, does it have a direct, uh, real world cognate? Uh, Lovecraft said in his letter to, uh, Durleth that he made it up, but that it is, by and large, uh, sil- similar to Salem, but with a uh, university. But even if you look at the uh, stories, Arkham sort of moves around a little bit because in Colorado Space and uh, Picture in the House, it seems to be inland, but then later on, it's a seaport. So Lovecraft sort of moves it around geographically, depending on uh, where he wanted to put it. Right. He does not have enough fans to well-actually him while he is alive and, and writing. Yes, thank or at least goodness. they can't transmit the well-actuallys uh, as efficiently as, as we can today in the age of the internet. Does he also talk about Salem? Does Salem appear as Salem in his stories? Uh, Salem is mentioned a couple of uh, times, but it is never the site of an actual uh, story of his. Salem is um, used often as a place witches come from before he realizes he can also have witches come from Arkham. So the men of Dunwich, for example, are driven out of Salem. Uh, some of them, the, the, the old armigerous families are, are, uh, it's, it's positive that they were witch cultists who left Salem, uh, and founded Dunwich in 1692. So Salem acts as a signifier there. But again, Salem is its own duality because Lovecraft would know that Salem is from Jerusalem. So when he establishes this sort of Christ story in the Dunwich horror, uh, which it is, it's an inverted uh, Christ story. The fact that Dunwich is a new Salem means that it is a Jerusalem. So there's a, there's a lot going on with even the sort of allusions as you discuss, but uh, Salem is, is there as a, as a reference point, but nothing actually happens in Salem and Lovecraft. So have you, uh, are you considering doing a little sort of sidebars or mini entries about uh, places like Salem that, uh, get a little bit of play, but not enough to warrant an entire essay. Well, there will probably be a geographical index at the very least, so you'll find out where he mentioned Salem because it's going to show up in the essays, for example, on Arkham and Dunwich. But at the sort of, if we are very, very lucky and good and everyone comes and helps us out with all of their hoarded uh, school pennies, I will do a Lovecraftian gazetteer in the back that will list uh-huh. every location mentioned by Lovecraft uh, keyed to the stories and perhaps with a line of explanatory text. And if you, the listener, are thinking, I only have so many pennies, especially after the Yellow King role-playing game. Right, yes. Starter, uh, goodness do knows. Do not underestimate the power of uh, pledging what you can afford and then uh, talking about this uh, Kickstarter that you're excited about on social media, because I can tell you looking at uh, you know where the traffic is coming from that uh, you have a huge power at your fingertips to make a Kickstarter bigger that you may be underrating. So uh, whatever Kickstarter you're currently infatuated with, uh, that's a brilliant way to help uh, make it bigger that costs you no more pennies. So uh, speaking of places that move around, Plateau of Lang, what do you have to say about that? I have a great deal to say about the Plateau of Lang, but much of it will be said in a uh, stretch goal essay. Lang is not one of the original uh, 19 that I sold uh, the idea on to weird tales. 
but I have written extensively on Lang in the past. And can How appropriate that it would be elusive and it would take effort to get to. Exactly. There's a great uh, line where Lovecraft quotes Randolph Carter saying, uh, men approach Lang from many directions. And it's like, wow, way to hang a lantern on yourself, perhaps subconsciously, HP. <laughs> it's very cool. Lang, uh, of course, is one of those great locations, you know, instantly communicative. And, of course, it moves around because Lovecraft... Uh, again, he's not going to be tied down. He's not writing something with a continuity. He's writing literature. So his Lang begins as a plateau in Central Asia, and then it sort of drifts around a little bit, and maybe it's Tibet. And then uh, the in uh, At the Mountains of Madness, they describe the uh, plateau in uh, Central Antarctica as Lang, and Lang appears in the Dream Quest as a location in the Dreamlands. And so there has been a great deal of ink spilled on how all of them can be Lang, and I will spill more of it if uh, it comes down to the uh, Lang stretch goal for Tour de Lovecraft the Destinations. Well, I don't think we could have possibly uh, whetted the appetites of our listeners more for Tour de Lovecraft the destinations. So I guess the thing to do, uh, folks, is to check uh, Kickstarter or the uh, link in our show notes to find out if it is in fact live as you hear this or is going to be live very, very soon. And uh, speaking of very, very soon, I think what's very, very soon on the other side of this commercial is yet another segment of this podcast. What? I've been covertly mentioning it like crazy these past few months. But now it's time for you to overtly announce... That the Yellow King role-playing game from Palgrain Press is now on Kickstarter. Based on the influential horror tales of Robert W. Chambers. This latest gumshoe flagship title sends your players on a mind-bending journey through twisted histories and alternate selves. From Paris in 1895 to Europe's shattering 1947 Continental War. To the ruins of the Castain regime to a world like our own. Or nearly so. When I played a section of the Paris sequence, I was the architecture student. Help us add even more content to all four of the core books, which nestle together as a single product in one elegant, not to mention magnetic, slipcase. We got chased by a spider statue. Also snap up our gorgeous found object collage Paris source book, Absinthe in Carcosa. My character drank copiously and engaged in the witticisms of the doomed. And a novel by yours truly. Stretch a goal or two before the king in yellow comes for you. Go to Kickstarter and search Yellow King Roleplaying Game. Or dare to look at the sinister link in the show notes. Campaign ends today, Friday, June 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. But notice what does not welcome us. The endless prattle of the GM reading text boxes. <laughs> Instead, play is proceeding without their help. Robin, why and when and how should the game master... Shut up. So we game masters and uh, the, the hosts of this podcast cannot exempt themselves for this, for we are both game masters and people who like to talk. In fact, 
you were the word talk is in the name of our weekly podcast. That's how much we like it at length about a whole bunch of I don't know stuff. Yeah. Uh, so as a GM, uh, as as a breed, we are often people who like to talk, and uh, sometimes we could benefit from some self editing and. Uh, you have to be careful as you contemplate the ideas that we're about to introduce to you in this segment that you don't self-edit yourself so much that you become self-conscious or that you freeze up. But there are often times when it is appropriate to say less and to invite the players to say more or to become uh, interactive with you more quickly. Now, I would never suggest that I've occasionally, uh, while I have uh, hours to spare at a uh, game convention, which means a game convention other than Gen Con, I never yeah. have moments to spare there. Right. But at a smaller con, I will sometimes uh, walk the room and see, uh, hey, what are people playing? And uh, if they're playing one of my games and the GM might know who I am, I especially don't stand there and hover over them because what could be worse than that? Uh, but I have noticed that sometimes uh, GMs are uh, talking when they could be interacting. So uh, let me kick this off by saying, uh, as you start a game session of a new game in particular, uh, or uh, whether that's a, a convention game or your first uh, session of a new game with your ongoing players, consider cutting the preamble as much as you possibly can. If your first thought is, what are all the things I'm going to have to explain to people right off Cut that as much as you possibly can. If there are things that you think they need, wait until they come up in play or even in character generation to answer questions. So I guess the my uber point here that I'm going to make for the rest of the segment is whenever you've got a chunk of something that you think you need to impart, look for ways to turn that chunk of something into a Q&A. So rather than, for example, a... Uh, a long discussion of the 100,000-year history of the elves that is going to matter in the course of your game. Wait until the characters encounter something involving the elves, and then they find out as much about that history as they actually ask. Uh, Ken, I'm sure you also uh, are a self-editor at the table. Are there things that you find yourself always editing out and are surprised when you hear other GMs not doing that? By and large... The thing that I try to edit out is, uh, unless there is a clear sign of flailing, I try to edit out any sort of urging the characters into a given action. And I think that there are, you know, there is some degree of we've only got so much time and we need to move. And there are certainly game tables that move at a more rapid clip than mine. So this may not be necessarily a universal, but it is a style thing. And my style thing is that I think players enjoy a story more if they know that they got themselves as deep into the stew as they possibly could. Um, it's harder to do that with some games, for example, with an F20 type situation where people kind of have to get to the dungeon because that's where the fight is. There is a little more chivying necessary than with a big old glorious sandbox where anything can happen around the corner, which you can also, of course, do in F20. And there are many lovely sandbox campaigns there, too. But the sort of story you're telling, uh, the sort of game you're having is going to vary how much outside uh, pressure. And that doesn't even have to be an, a, an, an NPC saying, you know, oh, here's a map to a treasure uh, dungeon. It can also be the GM saying, well, 
uh, being from this area, you know, there's a treasure dungeon around the corner or gosh, you're all poor. Wouldn't it be nice to have some treasure? Like you might get out of a dungeon or it'd be a shame to let all those dungeoneering tools that fell out of the sky and hit you go to waste. <laughs> I wonder if there's a treasure dungeon around. I prefer to allow the characters to sort of lure themselves in, uh, often by, uh, discursive Richard Linkletter-esque dialogue. Um, and then, you know, oh, there we are in a treasure dungeon. How did that happen? Record scratch. So what would be an example of uh, link latering your players into trouble? The the players uh, link later themselves. That's the ideal. I mean, my, my job as, as link later is to... So what, how would the players link later themselves? Although the players will begin by uh, d- discussing uh, all of their various options. And usually, because they are generally pretty proactive about engaging with setting, they will say something on the order of, um, well, I have this, uh, magic item. If we go to the sacred grove of Diana, we can get it blessed. And the other players will say, Oh, I could, I could stand a trip to the sacred grove of Diana. Let's do that. Or instead, or there might be a lengthy discussion of, should we stick around the city? Um, have we done everything that we can do here? Um, what do we think is around this corner? And then there will be a lengthy dispute about, would this part of uh, of the Mediterranean be a a, a positive uh, use of our energies? And even in those discussions, what they're doing is they're still sending signals to me. We are interested in maybe this part of the Mediterranean. So if an old man with a map comes by that leads us there, we will have sort of laid our own uh, our path to it. But they will talk themselves around out of it. No, oh, it sounds dangerous. It sounds far. It'll take too long to get there. Whatever. And the other thing that that uh, does, uh, parenthetically, is that if they have a series of common objections to something, then if what you've been meaning to do is move them more, uh, solve that objection within the, in the form of a, a of a, a magic item or or some other thing that that let, lets them make decisions uh, more readily towards the, the the outcome that you want. Right. So that's an example of you shutting up and right. allowing the players to talk to each other and interact with each other. And as long as they are, somehow there is some movement, no matter how uh, indie American cinema it is, yeah. that still works. Everybody's having fun. Everybody's engaged. Um, and uh, the only intervention that I would make in a situation like that is if they have sort of sidetracked themselves to the point where they have uh, mentioned and then forgotten the two or three best, most logical options uh, and are sort of, and as you mentioned before, are flailing, then I will very gently step in and just reiterate what their choices are without trying to point them in uh, one direction or the other. And so that's an example of, you know, waiting until there's a problem in order to uh, speak. You mentioned uh, text boxes. I just want to jump back to that. The A lot of adventures either explicitly give you stuff to read out to the players. That's not quite so fashionable now. But even the adventures that you and I uh, write can have uh, bits of descriptive text that are in a way sort of novelistic because part of the point is to bring the adventure and scene to life for the GM who can then convey that to the players. Uh, But I would suggest that whenever you find that stuff, that you, uh, as a GM, paraphrase it and put it into your own words, even if they are not as elegant as the words on the page, they will still be more spontaneous and feel more like you are interacting with the players rather than that you are just uh, reading a bunch of uh, uh, canned text to them. Um, And the thing about that is as soon as the players jump in and start to interact with the setting, 
don't worry about the fact that you haven't described the bunker or the uh, exact outfit that the uh, guy in the fez uh, in the bunker is wearing. Uh, don't stop them from uh, leaping in and talking to the guy with the fez to describe the braids on his fez. Uh, and if any of that stuff really matters, you might sort of quickly indicate to the people who are playing the characters who aren't speaking to the character, you could say, and you're noticing some stuff about this room, and I'll get that in a second, and then get back to the interactive bit. So don't step on choices or dialogue unless you really, really have to because they're making a weirdo uh, choice. Like if they say, oh, well, then I just barge right in. and Oh, wait, there's spikes. You would have seen the spikes. You got to say that. But don't, uh, vivid detail is only there to engage the player's imagination. So if they're already engaged and figuring out how to, you know, get the guy with the fez to tell them where the passports that will get them to Cairo are, don't worry about the, the finer details that are either in your notes or in the written adventure. Another thing that sort of pregnant silence is really good for is horror gaming. I have the same temptation that every horror GM does to add that extra dramatic sting and to over-egg the pudding and to say, now more rats have crawled out of the walls and they're on you, ah! But if the players are already scaring themselves, either because of the atmospheric text that you have put in your own words, or because there is something that is legitimately, objectively scary going on, like giant worms uh, glorping away at their legs, whatever it happens to be, Give them moments in which to be scared and scare themselves by describing how screwed they are. And even if it's just, I'm down to nine hit points, which is not one of the great terrified utterances of our time, but is still in the moment a expression of tension and worry and nervousness, don't step on it until you sense that they are beginning to have some degree of uh either tactical or store or um uh or or narrative control of themselves and then you can add oh and also did i mention that the air is uh being filled with a mephitic gas that is um uh, uh erupted from the mouths of all the skulls on the wall or whatever whatever your amplitude was or even if it's just when you come around to do the next round of combat adding more horrific details but don't describe the horror and then discover that the point at which they were the most scared was halfway through your description. What you want to do is describe it, wait for that emotional beat, wait for the players to build their own horror, because interacting with each other, they will, if they're uh, good players, um, which all players are good players, just like the dogs. And then you can feed that, but don't dump all the charcoal on the fire and then wonder why the fire went out. Yeah, well, one beat with uh, the same emotion, uh, with, with one emotional charge is stronger than three beats in a row with that same emotional charge. Another thing that, uh, and this is sort of a matter of group culture, but if uh, your desire is to uh, keep people on track and to uh, do more than just sort of hang out and have a conversation where your, your characters then jump in and do stuff uh, periodically, a big temptation always is once the players start to digress and talk about, you know, the latest episode of Twin Peaks or whatever the latest reference is to something else or uh, is to jump in and take part in that. Uh, and no matter how tempted you are, uh, I do occasionally succumb myself if there's a really quick one-liner or something. If I if I don't get, get a laugh, I do it. But otherwise, uh, I uh, bite my tongue and uh, my job while the game is running is to keep it on topic and focused. And that's why I would recommend, you know, have 
a bunch of time to chat at the beginning, have a bunch of time to chat at the end, but keep the actual uh, game uh, focused because your players will happily uh, prattle on about other things, but they may gradually start to lose interest in the game and stop showing up in a way that they would never articulate. Uh, but uh, I would, uh, I, I'm a strong advocate of uh, keeping the digressions to a minimum while you're actually playing. In a second about sh- shutting up, I guess we shouldn't go over length. No, we should we should not over talk the merits of not talking. Uh, in fact, I think we should just uh, abruptly move to the next segment. when demons lodge in your memories. Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect That upon sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers, exactly like Mark Galliotti, Anderson Todd, Stephen Brandon, Jacob True, and Gareth Ryder. Hey, Cthulhu City is coming out soon, Hanrahan. Oh, we got married again. That's so sweet. Can you do that in Ireland? <laughs> as long as you're marrying a Cthulhu book for Trail of Cthulhu <laughs> okay, from right. Gumshoe that should be out for Gen Con. Yes, you can. Thank goodness. Once more, Ireland has shown us the way. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Jeff Cars asks Ken and Robin, I am having a hard time getting my old school players to engage in narrative sharing. What tips can you give for getting the players to aid in story creation? Uh, Robin, what tips can you give for getting the players to aid in story creation? Uh, well, first of all, let us assume that they want to aid in story creation, but they're just not getting the hang of it. Because if they don't want to, if they want to continue on in the old school tradition where there are very uh, uh, strict, um, sometimes arbitrary, but very strict uh, rules between what the GM is allowed to uh, add to the story and what the players are allowed to add to the story. There are uh, ways that you can sort of uh, bridge the character eye view of the world uh, and the idea that you also get to shape parts of, of the story of the world. And so the thing is to, first of all, don't at first, ask them to make any big decisions about the big scope of the world that in a, a more uh, 
traditional style of play they would expect you to deliver. So the first thing you ask them to do should not be, here's uh, three different ideologies that the leading church can uh, promulgate. Which of the ideologies do you want them to, uh, to, to As do? As a first level cleric, what's your opinion? <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. What, is, what are the actual, what's the actual theology of the church of St. Cuthbert? <laughs> right. So you, you stick at first, at least to the, the big macro things, keep doing them yourself. But, for example, if they ask you a question about the the world outside of their character and you don't have a strong desire one way or the other, you can then start to save yourself the um, mental cost of coming up with the answer by saying, well, what do you want to be true? So if the question is, is there a stable in the town? It's like, do you want there to be a stable in the town? And it's usually implicit in the question that they do. Uh, so sometimes you can just go, yeah, sure, of course. But also it's like, well, as a uh, as a cleric of St. Cuthbert, uh, uh, am I expected to show up for uh, daily services or, you know, what is my prayer like? And it's like, well, what do you think? And so without putting them on the spot uh, too much and uh, keeping things within the perspective of the uh, character, if not necessarily within the control of the character, start small and, and widen out would be my... Uh, first uh, bit of advice. Another way that is, you know, uh, honored by ancient tradition going all the way back to, you know, champions is uh, the way that you get players to aid in story creation is you give them points for it. And that, you know, used to be, you just get points for creating advantage, uh, disadvantages. So you'd have uh, an aunt may that's always getting in trouble. And so you get points for her or you would get points because um, you're hunted by the one armed man who thinks that, uh, you're a rotten, dirty uh, murder hobo when, in fact, you're a stalwart adventurer in the name of St. Cuthbert, perhaps. And you have added a one-armed hunter or you've added an Aunt May or you've done whatever it is that adds a thing to the story. And that kind of narrative sharing is as old school as old school. And all that has happened with the new school really is that they've moved the narrative sharing down a little bit to the tactical scene right now where it's like, you know, is there a chandelier to swing on? Yes, you have just asked there is one or putting in a Benny economy where you spend a, a, a hero point or an action point or a Benny point. And you say, I leap for the chandelier and I swing on it and I kick that guy in the face. And because I've spent my Benny point, I know there is a chandelier there for me to leap and swing from. All of those things are, are quite venerable now. Yes. That's not new cutting edge stuff. Right. But if you are having a problem with narrative sharing and your problem is because you are old school, the one solution is to say this narrative sharing is actually old school. Yeah, you are exactly. not betraying the sacred code of being old school and, and more stalwart because yes. look at that. It, you, you it's right there. You will still find some graybeards who argue that the existence of hero points is a violation of the initial social contract that they were sold. But uh, Well, then those are the people who, as we previously alluded right. to, you do, not, um, uh, you do not change a darn thing because everything's fine. But uh, story sharing and story building can begin that way. Obviously, Weapons of the Gods did the magnificent thing where you were uh, paid points for caring about bits of the backstory. And then once you've made yourself part of the backstory, you're engaging in, in story co-creation because... If you are fated to come across the drum inescapable, then you have to go find the drum inescapable. That's part of the story. And you've chosen that with points. Yes. The, the more story focused gamers tend to be the less interested they are in uh, that form of reward. But if you're old school, you are still interested in reward. That's part of it for you. So, uh, yes, exactly. As you suggest, uh, um, bribery yeah. is always <laughs> an excellent uh, way to appeal to old school, if not 
uh, new school players. Once I have a group that is a little bit used to having uh, story sharing demands placed on them, I will then broaden it out to ask them to paint the occasional scene of their character, uh, especially, for example, at the beginning of a uh, new campaign where, okay, well, describe your character doing the super cool thing that your character does. And so, oh, okay, well, I'm a thief, so I guess I'm uh, stealing stuff from uh, a cask and uh, and just sort of uh, turn the Q&A backwards and say, oh, if they don't jump into immediately describing the scene, which they almost invariably do, uh, you can then say, so what uh, What color is the cask and what uh, who, who does the cask belong to, do you think? And get them... Uh, you know, describing uh, stuff. Uh, so often, for example, I will do a long series of uh, when the story re- for believability requires a long, arduous journey, but I don't want to spend three sessions of random wilderness encounters, I'll say. Uh, so what was the uh, risk that you took to save the rest of the group during the course of the journey? And uh, again, ask them to very quickly uh, describe sets of things and uh, because it is something that their character is doing, again, it's an intermediate step uh, before you get them into like active uh, world building. And so it's really a matter of uh, taking uh, baby steps, essentially. The um, uh, other thing that is a, a good one, and we've talked about this in terms of uh, uh, lighting travel, but you can do this with anything, is you say to the player characters, the king offers you the run of his uh, treasure because, as a reward, what one thing do you do you find that you wish you could take, uh, but you know you can't have yet? Uh, that, that's behind uh, 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 bars. Or you say to them, um, during your trip across the forest, something great happened. What happened? And then some of them will say, well, I got plus nine boots of stomping. Or they will say, I met the fairy princess um, uh, Nemuel, and we have agreed to um, uh, live together on alternate Saturdays. Or whatever it is, that's the great thing that has happened. And then that allows them to sort of provide a reward for themselves. And then you can also say, but of course that great thing came at a great cost. What was the great cost you had to pay? And then they're like, okay, now what? And so that methodology of sort of constraining it in time and place, it's, you know, the King's not going to let you into the treasure chamber all the time. Um, uh, so when you, you know, filled your pockets with opals, um, this is your only chance to case the joint. What else is going on in there? Um, they know that they're, they're not going to be expecting to have to fill out every single chamber. And if it's just for that trip through the magical, uh, uh, fairy forest, then yeah, they expect, all right, that's what fairy forests are like is there's all kinds of crazy narrative sharing happens there. Um, and then if they, if it becomes, um, uh, cool and, uh, and interesting, then they can sneak back to the fairy forest for a little more narrative, narrative sharing on the sly. Go thou to the city of tropes. <laughs> yes. They are there for the. For the for the taking. So, so, they, uh, so they, <laughs> yes, I don't like it. It's a duality. There are many mere cliches. Avoid them. Seek out the archetypes. Yes, for only they can speak truth. I should know. I'm an old man in a tavern. Oh damn it! I'm a cliche. Get him. <laughs> uh, and so by by uh, constraint, where the hell did that come from? By constraining the, uh, the that narrative sharing moment narratively or within the story to a specific place and time, you uh, can do it safely, is sort of airlocked away from the rest of the uh, adventure. And if it turns out they enjoy it and you don't hose them for it, which is another thing, don't punish players for doing things you're trying to get them to do. Then, um, uh, 
that provides maybe a little in- indication that it wasn't so bad and we could do it more often and we could do it in a fight scene or we could do it in a certain kind of dungeon or whatever. Right. And then to get to the, the final sort of bigger macro level that I initially suggested that you uh, don't start with, uh, once you uh, want to start bringing character uh, players in on world building, A, don't do it while they're in character, do it at the beginning of the session or uh, even, you know, off book on a, uh, a Slack channel or however you communicate with your uh, the rest of your group. And then start off by putting things in uh, either or choices. So uh, let's go back to the, the Church of St. Cuthbert. You can say, is the church honest or corrupt? And then they can pick which of those uh, two things. And then when they decide uh, that they are uh, uh, honest and forthright, uh, you can say, so what is the uh, biggest threat to their existence, uh, the king or a rival religion? And so they are making choices about the setting, but they still are, have enough to go on rather than just, because uh, I, often I think the problem with narrative sharing is not just the set of expectations that you build up as a more trad player, but also just being put on the spot and not being necessarily adept at, at thinking of, of creative choices on the fly. So if you uh, give them a sort of a multiple choice or a, a, a either or structure, I think that they will uh, do much better. And then maybe at some point, uh, the next time you, you, uh, you know, they move to the next town and, uh, you know, the big power in town is the Leathermakers League. And, and then you, you can just say, what's the big crisis facing the Leathermakers League? And then they will have had enough experience of being guided that they can just think of something. Uh, rather than uh, being presented with a choice. And another thing you can do is you can provide it as a way to tie into the things that they've already established about their character. So even in the most relentlessly old school of games, people will be telling you about, about the family background of their character. They'll be saying, I come from a long line of dwarves, noble, stolid folk, and my father, Exel Dansenbeard, was, was, was a noble dwarf who all other dwarves venerated. And then... When you go out, if you want to get that player to uh, contribute, you say, oh, look at that. Here in this town, there's a little statue of your father, Axel Dansenbeard. Um, and there, there's little pieces of incense and some flowers. And look, also, the beard is articulated and, and flows in the wind. That's great. <laughs> and, um, uh, and also, um, uh, someone seems to have thrown an egg at it recently. So what do you think? Uh, what, what did your father do in this town that would get most people to like him? And who wouldn't like what he did in this town? And then that's tying into their sense of their character because it's their, it's their father that did something and they can say, Oh, this was the town where he found that silver mine for the people. But because he was a, a wandering dwarf in those days, he couldn't stick around. Um, uh, but he does ask that they send him, you know, a silver dove made of the silver every year. And probably the guy who threw the egg is, uh, someone you who just wanted to give him a silver uh, dove made of bronze. Perhaps. Exactly. Or perhaps of, of black enamel. And, and so the, uh, <laughs> And, and so that is what's going on is there's a guy who just resents that the town has to send a silver dove to the dwarves. Well, now you've got a silver dove. You've got a resentful dwarf hater. You've got all kinds of things that that player put in. But because it was about them and their story, they're gratified because it meant you read their endless blue book. And they're also, more, I think, more <laughs> willing to share and connect their characters' pre-established details to your world than if you just sort of walked into the town and you said, 
what, what do people think about dwarves in this town? And they're like, oh, well, I don't know. That's kind of for you to do. But if you're there, what do you think about your father in this town? Then they're, oh, yeah, I get that I could have to have to answer that question because you didn't, you know, write this blue book. Uh, well, what I, I, I'm now seeing a dancing beard in, in the distance. And I think the dwarf <laughs> is beckoning us, first of all, to listen to an exciting commercial message. And then to the final segment of this podcast. Where maybe we'll get a silver dove. Ah, enamel. Enamel. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. It's time once more to venture into the ill-defined walls and possibly roof that make up the mysterious Elliptony Hut. You can tell it's the Elliptony Hut, uh, A, because it's diffuse, as previously mentioned, B, because we have a Nordic alien and a gray alien over in the corner sharing a kombucha, and we can look out the window and see an alien big cat screaming on the moor. And what the big cat is screaming this time is, hey, Ken, since 2011... People in Chicago have been sighting a bat-winged and or owl-winged humanoid, and we haven't talked about it yet on, in the Elliptony Hut. What's up with that, the alien big cat says about <laughs> the Chicago phantom? What's up with that? What's up with that? Well, we were obviously saving it for the most recent spate of sightings, which has happened in the last month or so. The bigger story, uh, the bigger picture of the story is that there have been 15 sightings of a large, generally described as bat-like flying humanoid in Chicago in 2017. There were two prior sightings that took place in 2011, and there was a report, uh, a couple of uh, sort of confused YouTube comment type reports of sightings <laughs> in 2005. Those are, those are the best reports. Those are the best reports. But there have been a lot of sightings in, t in 2017, and they have, at the very least, been independently confirmed with each other in the sense that two people are reported having the same sighting in the same geographical area of Chicago, so that they're both looking up from different blocks and seeing the same uh, winged bat-like figure. Now, I just want to go on record as saying, thank you, Batman. Save us. <laughs> <laughs> because the descriptions are basically as though it was Batman. The, the, it, it, it's a it's a winged figure. Uh, sometimes it's flying. Sometimes it's leaping. Sometimes it's just sort of hovering around. It's humanoid, and it has big bat wings. Occasionally, yes, you get the owl sighting. And uh, one person, uh, apparently a Tasmanian, uh, said, "Well, it looks just like a sugar glider, like we might see it have." <laughs> 
And that guy <laughs> saw it in Hyde Park in um, uh, 2011. So uh, th- that might have just been uh, Tasmanian drinking. But uh, uh, many of the other sightings do seem to be pretty much the same figure. And so uh, whether or not it is a, a Batman or an Owlman or uh, perhaps uh, people have been alluding to the possibility that it is the Mothman. Although, as I point out, the Mothman appears uh, for uh, physical catastrophes, not fiscal catastrophes. So it's probably not Mothman. <laughs> well, you'd, if, if there's a bridge collapse, we'll know in retrospect. Right. Yeah, yeah, that that will. I will have been the one who looked foolish and said, yes, I guess it was, in fact, Mothman. But I think it's Batman who, as you know, appears when um, uh, your city is full of gaily caparisoned criminals. <laughs> <laughs> so, have you been seeing a a signal in the sky? Is the police commissioner I have been, been I've been shining you? a signal in the sky, Robin. I've been doing that my whole life, <laughs> <laughs> and that goes back to 2011 or 2005. So it's not just a, a Adam West tribute. No, it is. It is not. It, it predates um, uh, the ascension of Adam West. Uh, the first one in 2017 seems to have been March 22nd, and then um, they, they it shows up. Generally, about three sightings per month since then. So there's been four sightings in April, three sightings in May, and then I think about six sightings in June. So we've got, uh, depending on um, how you count sightings, because like I say, often you'll get two people who are reporting the same apparition in that they were both in Grant Park and they looked up and they saw uh, the bat, and but they each reported it to the website of the fearless pursuer of the bat of the Chicago Phantom, Lon Strickler. And uh, if you're named Lon Strickler and you're not out chasing down a bat, uh, a giant humanoid bat, then something is wrong with you already. So good for you, Lon Strickler. Uh, long may you wave. Now, uh, there's a uh, a map, a Google map that's been made of showing where yeah, all the sightings is. occur. And they kind of cluster uh, sort of near the water. And is there any other sort of geographical significance to the uh, apparent range and habitat of the Chicago Phantom? Um, like many exciting things in Chicago, more, more of it is on the north side than on the south or west sides. But there is um, a, a gratifying number of sightings on the west side. I think a lot of it is that more people are out at night by the lake, and so you're getting a geographic cluster. I don't think it's that uh, the Chicago Phantom or the, the, the Batman is necessarily living in a penthouse tower by the lake. <laughs> no. Yeah, that would be a weird thing to That would be an posit. odd choice for a billionaire who fights crime. But I think that what happens is you get lots and lots of people who go out in Chicago, and especially as the weather gets nicer, so you you see that the number of sightings has increased in June. Um, I think that as people go out, uh, they're more likely to be out wandering around at night over by the lake, and that's why the sightings cluster there. I don't think that you can necessarily say anything about the bat's uh, range based on those sightings, because again, it's as far south as Calumet City, it's as far west, uh, almost to Oak Park, and almost up to, uh, yeah, so in in Cicero, in fact, is the westernmost sighting, and then almost as far north as Evanston, though not quite, so Montrose Beach, up by Uptown. So you've got a a pretty broad range, indicating some sort of, perhaps, uh, bat copter, or other mobile that might transport the bat around chicago so if we're looking for signs of a uh, a man who takes the form of a bat we would be looking for criminals who are found uh conveniently beaten up and, and ready for the police to uh, arrest has that been happening um if, if if it has been happening it has so far been uh not had a uh, a major demographic impact 
on the criminal population, but you know, early days yet. <laughs> it took, it took, um, uh, Batman a whole year one to become Batman. So, um, uh, if you, uh, accept the 2005 and 2011 as perhaps training flights, what we are perhaps seeing is the beginnings of, of his, uh, war on crime, or it could be a, uh, a phantom from another dimension. I can't rule that out. Obviously, you know, I am trying my darndest to make it a Batman Tulpa, but I'm just one man with a powerfully influential podcast and a mellifluous voice. <laughs> so if, if we can't make it a Batman Tulpa, then, um, yes, it could be a, uh, a phantom creature or a, uh, or even an owl man. I, I, you can't rule out an owl man. So if it's an owl man, what is the mythic significance of, of that? Well, the owls are, first of all, um, uh, as we know, they're not what they seem. Uh, they are uh, a screen memory. They uh, exist to uh, overwrite what uh, you're doing. Owls are also associated um, with uh, Athena and with uh, Hecate. Uh, so you, it would be a perhaps an owl woman or a feminine energy that is appearing in Chicago. But I think given the overwhelming tendency to describe the creature as a bat creature, Either we have an owl woman and a Batman that are engaged in complicated uh, patterns of courtship over the city, or we have a single creature and some people think it's more owl-like than bat-like. Right. You would think that would probably be more within the realm of uh, perceptual differences yeah. rather than what the actual object or creature is. And I, th I think if you've actually seen an owl fly, you are very impressed by how ginormous those wings are. And so if you haven't seen an owl fly and you look up and you see those wings, you might think that it was a bat shape, even though it is an owl wing. Because owls, we think of as these little sort of round, fun balls, but they, uh, their wingspan is, is non-trivial. Depends on the owl, but the great yeah. horn owl is, yeah. is uh, quite a thing. So I suppose there's a, and of course, when you start having a rash of sightings, that increases the chances that some of the sightings will be misperceptions. Right. Or will be people having on a, uh, a good fun because of the, uh, Chicago, uh, a phantom bat has now appeared on Reddit, which means, you know, no doubt at some point we'll be seeing uh, a giant frog over the city, perhaps, uh, who can say, but the, but, but, you know, Lon Strickler at least has been doing his due diligence in the sense of he's been gathering as much information as you possibly can presenting it with, with as much, uh, as much context as he can. You know, the, the, this, this, this sighting corpus is better, uh, just in terms of as an elliptonic fact than virtually every, uh, UFO sighting better than the Mothman sighting, uh, in terms of number of sightings and, uh, and named witnesses. Right. Because this, uh, elliptonic entity is choosing to manifest in a large city yes. and, and fairly frequently. Yes. And in the internet age where people can, uh, coordinate their sightings as opposed to, uh, go home and not tell their folks about it because their folks are like, what were you doing parking out by the old gravel yard anyway? And so because it has this momentum of sightings, do you think that it's going to continue to escalate? Do you think it's going to uh, peter out? Are we going to uh, wake up uh, one morning and the uh, the owl uh, woman will have been captured? Where is this story going to go somewhere? Traditionally, what happens with these stories, and I want to emphasize this is what happens with the stories not what happens with the database, because in the database, you look at it and you get plenty of times where people see something once or twice or three times and then nothing ever happens. But if you get a rash or a flap, it almost always builds up to a climax. And that climax might be 
um, something like the bridge collapsing in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. It might be something like a general agreement that there was the biggest one ever has happened. Um, we've already had uh, people uh, in the 2005 mentioned, uh, someone said that they were attacked. Another person says that he's got a strange medical malady from having seen the thing. Um, other people have heard strange sounds. So we are beginning to have more than a visual phenomenon affect people. And we may have a full on, you know, breaks into the news, close encounters type thing where, you know, it, it gets on the on, on the local news and becomes a big deal to people who are not already following news of Chicago phantoms. Or it could be connected to some other sort of uh, big event that everyone is like, OK, uh, socially, we've all had our fun talking about Chicago Batman. But after that, you know, horrible uh, or or wonderful thing has sort of blown out all the energy of it. And, and we move on and, and then you just don't have any more sightings or you have a couple that just dribble out. So considering these as narrative, as opposed to as phenomenon, you have, I think the likelihood that there's going to be a big thing that happens at the end of it. And then that is the end of it. But again, we could, we might just be seeing Chicago bat phantoms forever because it might just be that there's a breeding population of great horned owls somewhere in an uh, unsold skyscraper floor. And uh, we're having our own, uh, owls focused version of, um, uh, cue the winged serpent. Now, are you prepared to assure our listeners that this is not an effort by the Chicago, uh, uh, convention industry to, uh, sort of lure Gen Con after the, uh, indie contract expires? I, um, will, uh, assure our listeners that if Gen Con is lured to Chicago, um, it will not solely be because of Batman. <laughs> well, I think that's as, concrete and assurances we can expect and uh when we uh reach a concrete assurance on this show especially in the uh diffuse confines of the elliptony hut i think it's time to declare victory and uh, wave goodbye for yet another week Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Share a day trip to Arkham with such patrons as... Ryan Leibarger, Scott Herring, Timothy Corum, Todd McGowan, and Tony Kemp. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. New designs include, okay, okay, I carved the yellow sign into one lousy potato. And Cat Hamlet Half-Elf Robot. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>